Hey everyone, welcome back to EU Confidential, the number one EU news and politics podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Heath, the author of Politico's Daily Brussels Playbook column. Manic Monday already feels like a month ago, but let's quickly remind you that Theresa May turned up in Brussels Monday thinking a Brexit deal was close enough to allow the opening of EU-UK trade talks, but she left empty-handed, scuppered by her own governing majority at home. As this podcast goes to air, we're all still waiting. The European Commission presented plans to create a Eurozone finance minister and a European monetary fund, while the body that fills the gap in the meantime, the OPEC Eurogroup, elected its new president, the Portuguese socialist Mario Centino. That win caps a great year for Portuguese left-wingers. Antonio Guterres now heads the United Nations, Centino the Eurozone, and Prime Minister Antonio Costa, who is also the host of the world's biggest tech conference, Web Summit, was featured in the 2018 Politico 28 list unveiled Thursday. Heading that list, Christian Lindner, leader of Germany's Liberals and the man who could bring down Europe's most powerful woman, Angela Merkel. Check out politico.eu to find out who the other 27 members of the list are. They range from chefs to spies and back again to politicians. In this week's podcast, we have a very special guest, the first president of the European Council and the former Prime Minister of Belgium, Herman van Rompuy. He joins us to present a report he's been shepherding since he left office called the New Pact for Europe. Van Rompuy is also possibly Europe's most famous author of haiku poetry. Here's Politico's Lauren Serralus reading a haiku poem Van Rompuy composed for EU Confidential. In it, he reduces the five years and more than 100 pages of thinking that went into the New Pact for Europe down to just 17 syllables. Verlies is verdriet. Het brengt blijvers meer bijeen. Samen veel sterker. Sorrow and sadness unite remainers more. Stronger together. Before Van Rompuy, we hear from Janis Amenoulidis, the lead author of the New Pact for Europe report, who gives us the background before Van Rompuy describes the politics. Janis, you've been working for several years now on this new Pact for Europe report that's just been released, and it's a collaboration not only between the European Policy Centre, but also other foundations like Wawadwan Foundation, Open Society, Bertelsmann Foundation. Tell us a bit about why it's taken so long to get together and how you plan to mesh these ideas with the parallel process that Jean-Claude Juncker has been undertaking with his Future of Europe white paper. Well, we started this process which involves foundation, but also very many national partners, think tanks and others in more than 17 countries in 2013. We started doing that by working out what we called at the time strategic options, and then went back to the member states, created 10 national reflection groups. We were only able to go to 10 member states, but we made a very uh, good distinction between member states, north, south, east, west, small, big, non-euro, euro, and created these national reflection groups to talk about the future of Europe and also then discuss with other national reflection groups. So we also had a transnational dialogue. And on all that, which over five years, more than 120 debates, we came to the conclusion that we are now ready to put together this third report, which is advocating what we call a win-which package deal. The need to re-energize Europe on the basis of the belief that there's a need to strengthen the defenses of the European Union, because future storms will come. We do not know what kind of future storms there will be, but you need to protect the EU member states and citizens from these future storms. In order to get there, there's a lot of unfinished business which still has to be done. 
for example, really to the poly crisis, but also to the challenges which we fear with respect to what many people call populism. Mm -hmm. um, and one, one question there, because it's, for me it's a fundamental tension. It's often so far removed from the lives of 510 million people that it necessarily can't happen on their doorstep all of the time. How far did you get beyond the usual circles of people who already know about the EU and are interested in the EU in being able to develop these ideas? I mean, you, you clearly went on the road, but was it to the usual suspects or did you go into town hall environments and to people who normally wouldn't engage to get feedback? In the um, first phase of our project, we created uh, citizens advisory groups in 17 member states. This were ordinary citizens who came together for a day discussing the strategic options. Obviously, we explained the strategic options in a way to them which was understandable. But at the same time, we also discussed the strategic options with the so-called usual suspects, with experts, with ministers, with heads of state and government. But we also discussed them with so-called ordinary citizens to get their feedback. And you can imagine that if you discuss the same subject in 17 member states, you will get a lot of different feedback. For example, with respect to the Euro crisis, the discussion in Italy was very different from the discussion we had in Germany. Uh, the fears, the hopes, the aspirations were very different in the different member states. When we put together this win-win package deal, it was not only a package deal among the EU27 member states, but it was also a package deal trying to overcome gaps within member states where they have difference of opinion on individual issues. Do you have to push this in 27 different locations or will it now be a Brussels focused campaign to raise awareness about these ideas and try and rally support? It will have to be both. Um, so we want to not only limit ourselves to the so-called Brussels bubble, but extend that uh, beginning of 2018 to bring them probably to Brussels and to have a bit more of a transnational debate on the basis of the proposals which we've come forward with and on the basis of where we will be at that time because we will have to await what happens in Germany, what the next new government will be up to, whether there will be a German-French initiative, how quickly that will take place. We hope to inspire also that debate. Now it's time to hear from Herman van Rompuy, the former president of the European Council, also the former prime minister of Belgium, and now heading up the European Policy Center. Welcome to EU Confidential, Mr. van Rompuy. This has been a huge piece of work that you've been involved in now. To me, it comes across very much as a Belgian solution. You talk in the report about needing win-wins, but that we can't be trapped in trying to make a great leap forward when all of Europe is not necessarily ready for that. So it comes across as a very pragmatic Belgian way of, of achieving progress on European integration. Is that a fair assessment or how would you characterize the work in this report? I think we have two kinds of approaches. The first one is more related to what I could call a narrative. Some are calling it a vision or a dream. But let's say what is the underlying message that's more neutral. And then the, the second part is how to implement this, uh, how make things more concrete and more practical. I think we have to find a a new balance between our open societies, our open economies, our open democracies, on which we are so proud, and which are under pressure, and in some countries even under threat. And at the same time, we have to protect people better. 
there's a famous word of François Mitterrand. He spoke at that time about a Europe that protects. Protects against what? Against unemployment, insecure jobs, massive illegal migration, climate change, terrorism, social dumping. If at the end of the process of this relaunching of the European project, people have not that kind of feeling that they are better protected and that our societies still are open societies, then we missed the objective of this operation. And that's absolutely key because populism lost battles in Europe, for sure, this year, but they haven't lost the war. Our aim is to give a more positive view on the European Union and to give them more hope. How can we turn fear into hope? This is a Western problem, but we are responsible, or we feel responsible for, uh, for the European Union. And that is the underlying message. So how to implement this? And then it becomes very concrete. So those two pillars or three pillars, mm -hmm. the single market, the Eurozone, and the, the Schengen area, the passport-free zone, how to make them stronger? Because as Yanis said, sooner or later, a crisis will happen. Mm -hmm. And do you have to take those ideas, combine them with the idea of the European Defence Union, Eurozone reform, do they all have to come as a package? You, you say there shouldn't be a grand bargain, but is it necessary that we link a lot of these together so everybody feels they're getting some of what they want? Or do you prefer to tackle them section by section? The leaders' agenda on which the uh, European Council agreed is a stepwise approach. Right? So we tackle the Eurozone and later on the Schengen Zone and later on defense and then some reforms in the European Parliament and so on, Spitzenkandidat or transnational list and all those things. So this is more a piecemeal approach. Mm -hmm. You have to find compromises and win-win situations in each of those topics. Mm -hmm. Our concern is that we have also to find a compromise across all those issues. And never forget that we have to give to the citizens the feeling of protection, as I just mentioned, mm -hmm. so that they don't lose sight. They will be confronted, of course, with the European Council on the Eurozone, a Minister of Finance over the European Monetary Fund and so on. And this is a process that will go on for two years. But in the meantime, people have to feel all the time that leaders are working for realizing this big bargain of this, this new balance between openness and protection. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I had my own thought or own idea, so a bit late to feed it into the process after you've been thinking for four years, but I was looking through the economic and the social dimension recommendations, and one of them was an idea with a lot of merit, and that was the rainy day fund, the technical solution for making sure that even in a time of crisis, a government has enough money to fund unemployment benefits and so on. And then it struck me that, okay, that's a good idea at one level, but also very hard for citizens to engage with something like that. And I thought, why shouldn't the EU offer something that was a simple safety net where they could tell every European that it was a European ideal that unemployment benefits would exist for them at, let's say, 50% of the minimum wage in their country, 
and that any government that wasn't already providing that safety net would be supported by the EU to transition into that scenario. Is there scope within the work of the report to have some kind of big, simple idea? Maybe not that one. Mm. I don't presume my idea should become the safety net. Mm. But can we move forward with those sort of ideas that people can politically absorb and latch on to, even as the behind the scenes work is going on? A simple idea is often a difficult idea. And simple ideas are the monopoly of populists. I'm not saying that you are a populist. But for instance, this common insurance mechanism, we, I launched this idea in the four presidents report in 2012 with my colleagues at the time of the commission of the Eurogroup and of the central bank. But we were fully aware that it would take a lot of work to put it in place. Because you, you are touching upon a key element of the social welfare states, which is still a national competence. So it's not that easy. How to find, with respect to national sovereignty, an answer to this concern? Because we need more solidarity in the Eurozone. A rainy day fund or a common insurance mechanism. How can we organize more solidarity? Then it is more than just a technical matter. It's also a matter of, of principle. Because a lot of people think, if you put your house in order, if each country put its house in order economically, raising competitiveness, or uh, budgetary, having a, a structurally, a budget structurally in, in balance, then it's okay for the Eurozone. Now, we need a systemic approach. We need an approach that go beyond member states. And therefore, we need those mechanisms related to solidarity, or we need a banking union, which is going beyond, again, national competences. And therefore, we have to convince people that it is in their own interest to create such an instrument. Now, often, when you create such an instrument, Germans have the feeling, we are paying for the Portuguese, or we are paying for the Italians. We can have a reverse situation in the future. Germany was once the sick child of the sick man or woman of the European Union. It changed afterwards. So how can we organize solidarity and convince people that this is an instrument that is at the end in the interest of all? And that's not an easy exercise. So there are technical problems for your simple idea and we have to overcome also prejudices. We have to overcome this feeling we are paying and the rest is just receiving. So it is a much more complicated process. There are no simple solutions. But, you know, I'm not so much interested in the process. I'm interested in the result. So the process will always be a process of compromise. By the way, in countries where there is no compromise anymore in the United States, they have huge problems. You know, in the European Union, we took major initiatives the last 20 years, each time in a time of crisis. With the back against the wall, the abyss in front of you, and the knife on your throat. And then we take decisions. Now, leaders have to say, look, there is no pressure. The economy is doing well. We are creating 6 million jobs in the Eurozone since 2014. The political climate is also much better. 
But we are convinced, we leaders, that we have to anticipate. Because a future financial crisis can happen again. A future refugee crisis, migration crisis can happen again. So we are telling to the people, we are anticipating this. We are not waiting until there is a new crisis and then take action. Often too little and too late. You may and that's be a real, real challenge now. Are stuck in the middle a little bit, I worry, in any case. Now that Angela Merkel is having problems forming a new government, it might be that there's not enough of a crisis to push everyone towards the ideas that you're suggesting in this report. But there is enough of a problem uh, with the German side of the Franco-German motor that this window of opportunity that you discuss in the report, it might close before anyone is really ready to catch up with Mr. Macron and run through the window and, and actually complete some of these re reforms. Are you worried that 2018 is going to become a very, very tight timeline with uh, the issues in Germany, the distraction of Brexit going on in the background, and just those few months to really get something done before the European elections come around again? Of course, there will be a delay because we have to wait until there is a fully-fledged German government, but I'm not panicking at all. Stability is in the DNA of Germany, and I think reason will prevail, and they will have a strong and stable government, which, by the way, if it is a reconduction or prolongation of the current coalition, will be much more pro-European than that was considered during a few weeks. In my view, it is a more a question of delay than a major existential problem. That's not the case, not the case at all. So 2018 will not be a dramatic year. 2017 could have been a dramatic year. Well, that brings us now yeah. to the authoritarian populism that you identify as the big strategic threat to the future of Europe. And I, I would have to say, objectively, I agree with that assessment. That is the big threat. But the EU lacks some of the tools it needs to really deal with that, I would say. You have the nuclear option, the Article 7 sanctioning of countries that are deemed not to be upholding our values, to be following rule of law, and so on. How can we deal with that? And should political parties, in fact, be doing some of that dealing? I mean, I look to something like Viktor Orban and his Fidesz party still being in the EPP. And I think the EPP could potentially take some action there rather than just at the institutional level. But what are your thoughts on that? We tend to forget rather easily. When things are turning in the right direction, we forget, and then we, we come to the next problem. So the issue you are mentioning related to Poland and, 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 and to Hungary, because with Poland, uh, they are in a group in the parliament with whom I'm not very familiar. Uh, I don't see the British Conservatives put a lot of pressure on Poland and so on. We are not at the stage of the nuclear option yet. It's already clear that for suspending the voting rights of a country, you need unanimity, and that it is already clear that we will not get unanimity. But I put a lot of hope also of what's happening inside the countries, and for instance in Poland, there is a strong resistance from civil society against some of the envisaged reforms. There is even an action taken by the President of, of the Republic 
So I think you don't, you haven't to underestimate what the process in itself can trigger. For instance, in uh, in Poland itself, we know that uh, already know that uh, in event a, a possible nuclear option will not get there, but the process is as important as the possible outcome or lack of outcome. Mm -hmm. And. Does that sort of cleavage or division within the EU, does that actually point us towards issues like intergovernmental treaties when we think about other ways of moving forward? The report doesn't quite endorse a multi-speed Europe, but it does acknowledge that different countries want to move forward with different intensities. So is it possible and necessary that different groups of countries do use methods like they did with the fiscal compact and intergovernmental treaty to make some of the changes that you want and to potentially leave some of the, the problem children, let's say, to the side if, if the Hungarys and the Polands of Europe don't want to cooperate when it comes to a big new migration deal or something like that. First of all, you mentioned the Fiscal Compact Treaty. It is an intergovernmental treaty, but you have to be fully aware that the UK is the only country which is not participating in it. Is the only country because the Czechs signed up in the end. Yeah, yeah the, the Czechs changed their position. So, yeah, don't let's say overestimate intergovernmental uh, treaties or, 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 or because, in to some extent, it's becoming very close. And in the, in the case of the fiscal compact treaty, and as for sure after Brexit, there would be no impediment to transform it in a fully fledged treaty change, I mean this intergovernmental treaty. Second is that we have already multi-speed in the European Union. We have, of course, we had the Eurozone, 19 countries are member. We have the Schengen Zone, some non-EU member states are member of the Schengen area, but until very recently, we had this PESCO, this Permanent Structural Cooperation on Defense. I think 21 or 22 countries are member of this exercise in multi-speed. And there is an example where it didn't take a crisis to make no, a leap forward. That's, that's I mean, that is a that, real that, achievement that, that, that people that, often what, haven't recognized. That's why I take this example. So de-dramatize multi-speed because we had a very recent example of multi-speed and the countries which are Eurosceptical, they are all on board. They are all on board. My last remark is we have, or my second last remark is, we have already in the treaties instruments of enhanced cooperation. They are there for, for years now. They are only used twice on minor issues. There is still this ongoing process on a financial transaction tax. Where we are opposed to is that a group of six or seven or nine countries say, they will not do so, eh? but if they say, look, we are the nine good ones and we will go forward on this, on this, on this, with excluding all the others, which is some kind of core group, then we are opposed because this creates the feeling that there are two kinds of, of Europe. The countries who want to make progress on some issues have all the instruments they need with the benefit of hindsight, is there anything you'd change about 
how you dealt with David Cameron's insistence to have things like a special deal on migration and the tradition that the UK and countries like Denmark engaged in where they would opt out of certain difficult mm -hmm. files. I'm wondering, would you have done anything differently in that respect? And is this new idea, is that a, a positive way of doing the opt-outs where you let the ones who want to integrate move forward and you encourage them rather than giving special side deals to the people mm. who don't want to participate. And but the deal we made and that my successor made with the UK is within the EU legislation and respecting the EU treaties. It was not a special treatment. Mm. Uh, it, it was a deal that was within the, the European framework, so to speak. But it didn't work at the end of the day. And so that's I wonder whether we should that, revisit that, it or that, that's something leave else. it alone. That's something else. But I think even the best deal that we could have made with Britain would not prevent Britain to vote as they did. That's my feeling. Uh, and I never thought that this kind of deal would make the difference. Huh? Uh, but that is just a personal feeling. Huh? But you're right. This, this, you have to opt out. And when we speak about multi-speed, it has to be also an opt-in. Mr. President, thank you very much for joining us on EU Confidential. And now it's time for some fun. We're welcoming back the podcast panel of Alva Finn and Lena Abarus. Welcome back. Hi, good morning. Now, a word of caution. We are recording this on Wednesday morning and it's a full week to go before the summit. So things may change before you've actually listened to this podcast. Let's get into our EU WTF moment of the week, or should we call it day of the week? And we are going to start with the manic Monday of Brexit. And if anyone missed that exciting news, that was when Theresa May came to seal her deal and get the trade talks with the EU open. And everyone looked like they were inches away from getting a deal on how we could handle the Irish border, how we could handle citizens' rights, what the UK would be obliged to pay after it leaves uh, the EU. And then the Northern Irish Democratic Unionist Party swept in left Theresa May with a slack jaw when she came back to lunch and she had to tell Jean-Claude Juncker, sorry, Jean-Claude, the deal is off. Well, it's all, it's all over these kind of two little words, regulatory alignment, so that the north of Ireland would still have regulatory alignment with the EU. And this would have kind of, well, this is what Arlene Foster says, this would have put a, a border in the Irish Sea which for many unionists, any kind of separation within the United Kingdom, they think, you know, that's a one-way ticket to a united Ireland. Because it's their lifeline back to London. Exactly. I mean, in many ways, <laughs> that would have put them in a better position. Mm -hmm. And we know that Northern Ireland was one of the regions along with Scotland that did not vote to leave the UK. However, the DUP did campaign for Brexit. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think that's very interesting. I also think it was <laughs> very funny what the what Scotland then said, if they're going to have this deal, why can't we have the deal? And uh, and London and Wales. Exactly. <laughs> Gibraltar's and coming united, up. No? <laughs> yeah. Lena, what does it look like to you? I, I think we should stop being surprised because every week every time we have a lunch or a meeting between uh, the EU and Prime Minister May, we have some some surprises and gaps to, to enjoy our week. It's, it's surprising that the Prime Minister wouldn't know all this information before um, beforehand and has a strategy, has a tactics, has a way out. So this is politics. This is a, a future of a whole country, a whole population. What and if she did know? That's the best theory I heard all week, that, that she knew that 
the DUP would reject this, but potentially she just wanted to get the idea of this deal out there to show the world there is a possible way to yeah. make this happen, it's, even if the DUP takes a while to be beaten around. And I mean, when they propose they want a seamless and frictionless borders without saying how and when and where, it looks very nice on a headline, and then they keep everyone ar wondering around them. If you had to bet now, is the UK going to win this permission to open and get onto the trade talks at the summit next week? I, I'm not sure because now people are saying that if you're going to have these, this regulatory alignment, why couldn't you do it like UK-wide? So I suppose if that ever went on the table, then yes. But if it doesn't... Doesn't then, sound a lot like Brexit no. to me. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, well, I mean, that's what I think a lot of people initially who would have voted for Brexit would have imagined. Yeah. No? Yeah, a soft Brexit, basically. Yeah. Lena, will it happen? I don't think so, unless they have some... Um, inspiration, some magical power that will descend from the sky and make everyone agree and she comes up with uh, with better arrangements. I don't think so. The we, we've seen stranger things than magic over the last year of Brexit. But you, I think on, on Monday when I was reading it in the morning, I was thinking, oh wow, I can't believe they've gotten past this. This is a, one of the reasons why I don't think it was probably Ther Theresa May because it makes her government look even weaker at a time when it really shouldn't be looking weak. And I think all of the EU 27 are actually trying to prop up her government not to rock the boat because they want to deal as well. Very interesting you say that. Uh, the Politico 28 list of movers and shakers, people stirring up Europe, it is coming out on Thursday morning just before this podcast goes to air. And I can reveal that number two on the list out of all of Europe is Michael Gove. So uh, we're going to leave you to stew mm. in the thought of where that man might be headed and where Theresa May might be headed. Mm. And now it's time to look at an EU thumbs up moment. And Alva, a little bird tells me you have a nomination for this week. Yes, I do. Every year the EU hosts a European Day for Persons with Disabilities. And they do a very interesting thing, which I think is very worthwhile. They award an accessibility award to a different or a number of different cities in Europe every year. This year, Lyon won, and Ljubljana, and also Luxembourg, but Lyon came first. They have a 100% accessible bus system, which I think is very good. But one of the stark comparisons that I noticed was, earlier in the day, a colleague of mine, Nadia, she was asked to talk about the accessibility of Brussels. And I mean, we're, we're at the heart of, of Europe and lots and lots of the metro stations are not accessible. The buildings, sometimes even the commission buildings aren't, aren't accessible. So I'm I think, an active 37 year old and I find problems getting around <laughs> Brussels sometimes. Yeah, in some of the commission buildings, you literally have to go up a few floors, then cross over buildings uh, and it takes you extra time if you're a person with My a disability. My favorite one is the ones where they install lifts, but then they just have four steps. Yeah. It's like, why? Yeah. Yeah. Why? I mean, like, literally, why did you install that lift without thinking about the rest of the even, platform? Even the pavements, even uh, the streets, even walking here to, to come. For us, it's difficult. Imagine for, for the people with, with disability. So let's yeah. hope for a thumbs up for next year to Brussels. Why not? Well, well Brussels. they're going to have to get rid of a lot of Job cobblestones with Leon, if they want to win that award. Well, one of the interesting things about the award was some of it was they were giving kind of special mentions to places that are reconciling their historic architecture with accessibility 
So I think that's maybe something that Brussels needs to think about. But one of the things that also struck me was, uh, for example, in Ljubljana, uh, they had an advisory group that basically worked with persons with disabilities and older people. If you don't have that, you know, someone who actually has to navigate their way around Brussels in some of these planning committees or whatever, then no, it's never going to change because you don't have the people who are actually affected by, by exactly. these things. They should put the planners in the wheelchairs themselves or stick them in high heels and have them walk through all of that. Yeah, yeah. and just, yeah. just talk to people who need to get to places and you'll find out all about accessibility. And they maybe as well make it like a part of the must when you open a business or you open any facility is to, to have this kind of advisory to go and assess the buildings and make it a point or you take a fine. In, in my country, if you don't have facilities for people with disabilities, you cannot operate and you cannot get the permission to open your, your company. So Well, a thumbs up to Jordan as well then. Mm-hmm. And now it's time for our Dear Politico advice oh. section. It's a, a short but difficult challenge that we have this week. And the question for our panel is, Dear Politico, a member of the European Parliament, gets me confused with a Sri Lankan all the time, just because we have a similar skin colour. So there's another person of Asian descent who works in the Parliament building. What do you think about this dilemma? Should he challenge the MEP? How should he challenge the MEP? When is it okay to be confused in a situation like that? Look, we're living in Brussels. There are all sorts of nationalities and uh, ethnicities and backgrounds living in one place. So I, I find it as an opportunity for engagement with this MAP. So if he, if he confuses him with a, a gentleman from Sri Lanka, there's no problem. Ah, thank you very much. I would love to be uh, Sri Lankan, but just to let you know, I am coming from. And uh, my name is. And my name is, and this is what I do. Like I mean, we can't just be upset because somebody has confused us. Day by day, I personally uh, confuse so many people coming from different parts of the world, and I try as much as possible. But maybe you do it the first time. Do you do it on a regular basis? Is it okay if someone just repeatedly can't remember you? Depends how important this person to you or close to you. You would remember, but if you see them every once in a while, you say, ah, yeah, okay, this guy is from X or... I see it as well. If you're too sensitive, maybe you should live in a smaller city where... People can, you stand out from the crowd and you are from one country and everybody knows that you are from that country. are you on the tough love train that Lena has joined? Uh, I would say that I have a more measured reaction to it. Of course, it's really a problem if someone cannot remember you and gets you mixed up with another person. Is it racism? This is a question that I think that a lot of people ask about these kind of particularities when you make mistakes about people's ethnicities. I think it's worse that he doesn't remember who you are, especially if he works with you on a general day-to-day basis. What I would do is you can really embarrass people whilst also making it like a joke, you know? Oh, I can't believe that you don't know the difference between India and Sri Lanka, this kind of thing. That can really embarrass people, but it's not like you you saying, oh, you're a racist, because that really gets people annoyed. When you accuse people of racism, their, their, their immediate reaction is to get defensive. But if you want to change how people think, you have to do it in a different way. It's, it's about persuading people. So what I would do is I would make a joke about it. I mean, people often confuse me with Americans or uh, people from the UK or don't even know that Ireland is separate to the UK, for example. Do I get very angry in response? No, because that's not how you persuade people to change their minds about who you are and where you come from. But is this also a case of hashtag Brussels so white, where I feel that if this person was in the majority, that they would be treated 
a bit differently. And I think that because Brussels is such a white city in its EU bubble, it's not a white city when you go out into the streets of Brussels, but you look around the people who take decisions in the EU, it really is literally 99% white. And I think it makes it easy for people who, you know, if you're a power broker in Brussels, you maybe don't care about the little people so much anyway. And if there's just a couple of dark-skinned people, why do I need to even worry about it? I think is a bit of the prevailing mentality. It's true. Sameness breeds ignorance, I think, in these kinds of settings. And it makes it okay for a person like that to say that because a lot of people like us will be like, well, I find it difficult to tell the difference between different ethnicities. And I would admit that I am ignorant about those things. You know, I can't tell the difference uh, between someone within the Middle East. Well, here we go. Lena, I mean, what's it like back in the neighborhood where you grew up? Would Mm. people take a significant amount of offense if uh, neighboring countries were confused with each other? No, because where I come from, we, we're, we're a melting pot. We have all kind of neighbors living all together in one place, given the situation in the Middle East. So we're, we open our doors. We, we will have the Iraqi, the Syrian, the Lebanese, the Yemeni. The, uh, of course, we would know from the accent. We would know from a bit from the colors, but we wouldn't just point out and here in Brussels, I feel it sometimes. I, I'm not called by my name or by, I'm called by my nationality. Really? Like, she is the. Oh, this uh, is Lena from Jordan. <laughs> yeah. Actually, without Lena sometimes. No, just the Jordanian. The Jordanian. Oh my God. So um, uh, you, you become like, fine, it's, it's, a great, it's a great. And I say, yeah, you know where Jordan is. And in the past, we used to always laugh because when you say Jordan, they will uh, confuse us with Michael Jordan. <laughs> So, so she's Michael Jordan's young. Okay, yeah. okay. So we are really starting from a low base here in terms of recognition. Well, I, I want to apologize on behalf of Brussels to you, Lena, that people refer to you in that way. Um, but I'm glad that you have such a generous spirit towards the reaction. Um, it's a very kind thing that you're doing. Um, that's all we've got time for on this episode of EU Confidential. Thanks for joining us here on the panel. Thanks for listening to the episode. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe us wherever you found this podcast. A big shout out to our podcasting team, Rosie Belson, Andrew Gray, and Wei Dong Lim. And this week is Rosie's last podcast, so we want to say a special big thank you to her for all of her effort, uh, making it sound professional, getting us all organized, finding the things that we're never able to find at the last minute. Rosie did all of that for us, and we can't thank her enough.